Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 126. You really have to forgive my extended wander when it comes to Cuba. The topic is so rich with incredible stories that it's easy to get lost in the research and the thrill of the archaeological dig, so to speak. And as I've said before to all of you, my South Florida roots make the story especially intriguing to me, including some of the stories that took place right in my own backyard. But regardless of how interesting I find the wander, for all of you as listeners to the podcast, I believe that the understanding of how the American mafia created a sort of adult paradise and insulated criminal enterprise in Cuba is important to the story of President Kennedy's assassination. And today, we tell the story of the Havana Conference of 1946, the historic meeting of key members of the U.S. National Crime Syndicate. It was a -a once-in-a-generation meeting, and it happened in Havana, and it decided the direction that the mob would take in Cuba and how the major crime families would participate in the criminal enterprise that was being planned. The conference would decide other important matters, too, but the subject of Cuba was tops on the list. Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano would build an empire that brought to life an idea born somewhere around 1928. It was their idea of beauty in paradise. It took an already refined Havana that was already the pearl of the Antilles, and it attempted to make it into the Monte Carlo of the Caribbean. And for a short time between 1952 and 1959, that is exactly what it became. But that was before Castro's revolution would finally take hold and snatch it from their hands, snatch it in one final and violent crescendo in that fateful moment in 1959 when all the foreigners in Cuba were forced to run for the exits, the mob included. It was quite a role reversal for a criminal enterprise steeped in a history of delivering violence to get what they wanted. Now, in that final moment, When Cuban society was descending into chaos once again, the mafia was, this time around, on the receiving end. And it must have been an incredible ego blow, a heaping that was on top of the enormous economic devastation that they suffered in just the same way that large American corporations did as Castro began to confiscate private property from everyone. It was a blow that the American mafia never quite recovered from. 
Our story tell today encompasses the conference itself, but some of the colorful lead-up must be told as well. You see, as I mentioned, it was a vision that was born back in the Prohibition era of the late 1920s, and it would take another 25 years before it would truly come to fruition. But it was all part of a grand plan that was aimed at turning the island and the sovereign nation of Cuba into a mafia and a mobster enclave. Their own little fiefdom, not unlike, perhaps, a Sicily in the 17th century. And it was only 90 miles off the coast of the United States, practically in the States, but just far enough away to be out of the reaches of U.S. law enforcement. Paradise for a gangster. As I said, it would be a dream of two men, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. And it would take both of these boyhood friends together to light the fuse which started it all. The conference would not have been possible without Luciano's sanction and involvement, but circumstances surrounding him would, almost immediately after the conference, require that the mantle be handed to Lansky. The way forward was left almost entirely in Lansky's hands, and so Lansky made paradise in his own image. And, of course, the Mafia literally bought the support of the island's government that emanated from a full-scale criminal partnership with Fulgencia Bautista, Cuba's president before Castro. It was a corruption of epic proportion, and it was also a prerequisite for Mafia success. (laughs) Honestly, you can't write this stuff. This grand vision was left to a criminal mastermind who could be found in Wolfie's Coffee Shop in North Miami Beach and easily mistaken for just another well-coiffed Jewish businessman of the day. Lansky was a man who shunned every type of publicity and preferred the shadows of anonymity. He was never known to have killed anyone himself, and his approach was the vision of a new type of mafia— one that would invest in legitimate enterprises that included morally marginal sin and pleasures of the flesh. Enterprises that were long since outlawed, or at least restricted, in the United States proper. But nevertheless, these were things that the public wanted and craved. In the end, it would be, for the Mafia, paradise lost. In Lansky's own words, and perhaps so poetically correct for the circumstance, He would simply say, we put our money on Cuba, and we crapped out. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 126 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Lansky grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in New York at a time when it was full of immigrants. His name was shorter in America than it was in the old country. He was Jewish, and he was smaller than other men physically, but what he lacked in size, he made up for in cunning. He was born in Poland in 1902 in what was then Tsarist Russia. 
His family fled to avoid the pogroms that were so common in the day there. Once across the water, young Meyer would obtain a formal education that took him through the eighth grade. Regardless of his formal education, from the very beginning, Lansky was enterprising. It wasn't very long before he was organizing crap games in the neighborhood, and he learned the ropes early. In those early years, the gang and the gangster system that was so prevalent in the day required a portion of any take on those kind of games to go to the bosses in the neighborhood. There were mostly Italians, of course, but there were some Jewish figures in the mix, too. It was in this time frame that Lansky would meet Arnold Rothstein. It has been said by some that if Lansky ever had one true mentor in the early years of his crime career, it was Rothstein. Rothstein was something of a gangster celebrity, a Jewish man famous for, among other things, fixing the 1919 World Series. He was also said to be the real-life figure that the gangster character Meyer Wolfsheim in the movie Great Gatsby was modeled after. Rothstein was a snappy dresser, and he well understood finances and financial matters. It was in this season of tutelage that Lansky would learn from Rothstein the more esoteric trade of high-wire criminal finance. He may have had only eight years in the classroom, but he was always serious about his studies, and he caught on quick and quickly applied his learnings to the darker side of things in life. Even so, he maintained a lifelong respect for education and learning, and he was just as likely to recite Shakespeare as he was the tax code. To his Italian friends, in Italian, he was known as El Giudio Maraviloso, or that marvelous Jew. He would eventually rise to heights in the syndicate that were of epic proportions, and he would be the mastermind behind so much of its empire in Cuba and in Vegas and in other places too, including the Bahamas and London. But as a Jew, he could never be a formal member of the Cosa Nostra. That was strictly for Italians, and no Jews were allowed. At syndicate meetings, he would, of course, be allowed to attend and participate as he garnered a great reverence and great respect. And at the Havana Conference, he would, in fact, lead the discussion about Cuba. But he could not vote. Only the Cosa Nostra could vote. I guess it's a fitting irony that even the criminals in those days had their social boundaries and biases. In those early years, Lansky would develop relationships that would come into play later. Boyhood bonds that would be formed with other neighborhood gang members that would form the core of what was to come later. First in New York, and in Vegas, and then finally in Cuba. Lucky Luciana would be the most famous and important of those relationships. As we know from previous episodes of JFK The Enduring Secret, Luciano would rise to effectively head up the National Crime Syndicate. Luciano's and Lansky's boyhood friendship would stay strong throughout their entire lives. Because we have already covered the early history of the mob, I won't be too detailed here. But let's start on a day in 1928 when these two men had what is generally agreed to be the first discussion together about the grand vision for Cuba. Can you imagine thinking about controlling an entire island nation the size of Cuba at age 26? This circumstance could be described in a number of ways. Precocious, perhaps? Grandiose? Naive? Well, it was audacious for sure. And in any case, these men were dreamers. But they weren't easily dissuaded. And they had the means. It's quite astonishing the level of vision and foresight 
that these men, as criminal entrepreneurs, displayed around this topic. Even with just an eighth grade education in Lansky's case, and less in Luciano's, they were able to see it. And because they operated within the framework of a vast criminal enterprise, they had the resources to make things happen and to make their Cuba a reality. Still, something like this would take money, skill, cunning, guile, and perhaps, most of all, a little luck. But then again, they were Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. The roots of their conversations go all the way back to the early years of the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, when Prohibition created the opportunity for Cuba to be a strategic asset in the burgeoning business of generating, importing, and selling illegal whiskey. It was beginning to be a primary location where illegal shipments would be positioned on the island, just outside of U.S. waters, and then easily transported from there and brought ashore in the uninhabited areas of the Florida Keys mainly, or even farther up the Florida coastline. There were other ports of entry along the coast as well. Some whiskey manufacturing would take place on the island too. The irregular coastline of Cuba made it easy to land shipments surreptitiously as well, and that proved to be very attractive to those using the island to stage illegal narcotics shipments, particularly the growing heroin trade that was already beginning to come to North America and particularly to Montreal. For guys like Lansky and Luciano, Cuba's current and growing strategic significance to mob business was already obvious to them. But Lansky could see more in the island's potential. Much more. As I said, Lansky was just 26 when he began to talk with Luciano about this vision, and he was only about as old as the independent nation of Cuba itself. Like most colonies that finally gain their independence, it takes time for a mature governance structure to emerge. Cuba was no exception. The 25 years that led up to that moment had been filled with tumultuous government. President after president swept from office, and there were numerous military or armed interventions by the U.S. government to stabilize the island, done under the auspices of the rights that the U.S. retained under the Platt Amendment, rights that were still in effect during this time frame a United States right that was essentially hard-coded into the Cuban Constitution. The Roaring Twenties had been so good to Cuba and to Havana and its tourist trade that the island was already beginning to become famous as a place to vacation, including its beautiful waters, its hotel accommodations, and its nightlife. What was to come later after the Mafia came to town would be the equivalent of putting the city on steroids. But just as quickly as things began to rev up in the 20s, the Great Depression would come along in 1929 and tourism would drop precipitously on the island and it would put the grand vision of Lansky on hold. Fast forward to 1933 at the height of the World Depression and the brutal dictatorship in Cuba headed up by Gerardo Mercado was toppled and the leader was sent into exile. It was one more seminal event one more reason why the Cuban military began to develop and hold the ultimate trump card in Cuba. By that time, Fulgencia Bautista was in his 30s and was a reasonably well-established mid-level officer in the Cuban military. 
He was handsome, and he had been exposed to high-level activity and other high-level members of the military through some of the roles that he had held, including one of them that was a stenographer role for some of the highest members of the military. He was well-liked, and he was already gaining a reputation as an excellent orator with persuasive ways. And when the crisis came, his leadership capabilities were put into play. And then came the revolt of the sergeants, the reshuffling of the military leadership that was born part and parcel of the political crisis involving Mikado. In the end, Batista emerged as a charismatic leader of the military during the crisis, and he maneuvered to the top of the military command as a result of it. In one sense, an incredible achievement to become leader of the Cuban military in his early 30s. And as the leader of the military in a chaotic republic, he was quickly becoming perhaps the most powerful man in Cuba. It was just about this time that back in the United States, Lucky Luciano would begin to lay the seeds for the mafia's future plans for Cuba. He would decide that it was time to begin to diversify away from the states as prohibition was ending and there was a need to look elsewhere for greener pastures where the mob could grow once again. The Castamolari's Mafia Wars were successful in getting rid of the old guard mafiosos who were suspect of investing outside the U.S. The Mustache Peets, as the old guard was referred to. Those old bosses, including Joe Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano, were now gone. These and others were murdered in the wars, and mostly because of the moves made by Luciano and Albert Anastasia. All of this and the ending of Prohibition paved the way for the discussion about Cuba. Luciano would, around this time, gather a selected group from the members of the National Crime Syndicate, and they would meet at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. Luciano would lay out the rationale for pivoting to Cuba, and he would lay out a plan to buy in. He would explain that Lansky had been cultivating the relationships over the past few years, and it was time to make the bet. After some spirited debate, all the members in attendance agreed to do just that. But who was this person that they would entrust their criminal enterprise to, make the payoff to, entrust the future of their criminal endeavor in Cuba? And so it's at this point that from the Mafia's perspective, we introduce the story of a young up-and-coming officer in the military. Yes, you know his name. Fulgencia Bautista. Young and good-looking, he was known as the Pretty Mulatto. Lansky had an eye for talent and potential, and Bautista was a rising star. And so it was Lansky that came up with the idea that they would approach this young officer, engage his appetite for criminal partnership, make an investment that may take some time to mature, but buy in early after gauging this young army officer's desire for money and wealth his penchant for corruption, corruption that was so prevalent in the developing Latin countries of the day, and finally, to test the strength of his bond, which, among the thieves of the mafia, means just about everything. There was no assurance that this young man would be the emerging leader in Cuba and that he would keep his bond with these men of corruption, but Lansky was a betting man, and he liked the odds. What happens next is the stuff that scenes in The Godfather are made of. Over the next few weeks, several million dollars in cash were raised from the members of the syndicate who attended Luciano's meeting. 
The money was placed in suitcases, and Lansky and his lifelong bagman friend, Joe Stotcher, would fly to Cuba and meet with Bautista and deliver the cash. Engage Bautista's appetite to participate, and certainly, to the amazement of Bautista, it was a substantial down payment toward an even more lucrative deal that they worked out. Bautista would be guaranteed between 3 to $5 million in cash to start, and he would also be entitled to half the profits that came from the casinos that would be built by the syndicate in Cuba. All this in exchange for ensuring that Lansky and his syndicate would retain exclusive rights on the island to place casinos wherever they chose. And I say again, exclusively. In exchange, Bautista would be the mob's muscle on the island, keeping his end of the bargain and also maintaining the order in an environment that had been in some form of social upheaval and political strife for as long as living Cubans could remember. The period of the Great Depression was unprecedented in modern times around the world, and those times in Cuba got especially bad in the early to mid-1930s. With terrible repression occurring, brutal beatings, hangings, and even murder, these were regular happenings in a society still trying to find its equilibrium and maintain social order. And the presence of these elements and the related social strife from which they were born made the strength of a military even more essential to keeping order in Cuba. Bautista would take the deal, and for the next seven years, from about 1933 to 1940, he would control much of what happened on the island through his control of those that rose to the presidency during that period. The military had great influence in getting leaders elected and in steering their affairs after they entered office. For Luciano and Lansky, all of this seemed to be falling into place nicely. And had it not been for the plans of state and federal authorities back in America, things might have continued on schedule for Luciano and Lansky in Cuba. And oh, uh, then there was this thing called World War II as well. But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. You see, in about 1935, shortly after this deal had been cut with Bautista in Cuba, a special prosecutor appointed in New York, Thomas Dewey, was going after the mafia there, and he got after Luciano. He had already seen success using federal tax laws to bring down many of the lesser mobsters in New York, similar to the approach that had been used to take down Al Capone in Chicago. But in Luciano's case, they charged him with 90 counts of compulsory prostitution. The trial was seen as a bit of a circus, and Luciano actually testified on his own behalf. That part of it did not go well for him. He was unconvincing and likely contributed to his own demise. He was found guilty and sentenced to 30 to 50 years, the longest sentence for compulsory prostitution handed down up to that point in time in the history of the country. Luciano was effectively facing most of the rest of his life in prison. Well, we've told the rest of Luciano's story in earlier Enduring Secret episodes, and so you know what happened. He would go to prison for the next decade. In his cooperation with the government during World War II, against the Germans and other Axis powers resulted in his sentence commutation at the end of the war. But it came at a price. The man principally responsible for establishing the National Syndicate would be placed on a ship in 1946 and forced out of the country and back to Italy, 
never to be allowed to return. Luciano's trial and conviction and the events of World War II would put the grand plans of the mafia, the grand plans for Cuba, on hold for that same time frame from about 1934 to 1946. Lansky would quietly work behind the scenes pushing things forward in Cuba and managing his gambling operations in South Florida, quietly waiting for his friend to come back to the forefront and help him lead the way back into Cuba. Lucky Luciano may have been deported, but he did it in grand style, engaging in a party on the liner before it departed the New York Harbor. Luciano had managed to keep a tight grip on the syndicate during his 10 years in state penitentiary. Perhaps it was largely attributable to the idea that he had abolished the old world rule of capo de tutti capo, the boss of all bosses. There was no such position anymore, thanks to him. And being in a U.S. prison, he was still amazingly close to the action. Leaving the country, well, even as his ship sailed out of the New York Harbor, on its way to Italy, everyone knew that Luciano was still in charge. But for how long was the question in the minds of many, including young and up-and-coming men like Vito Genovese? Luciano would reach the shores of Italy and, like a caged animal, he would immediately begin working on how to come back to America, Cuba becoming even more important to his grand plan to return to power over the National Syndicate. It wasn't long after he arrived back in the old country that he received a cryptic note. It was delivered by a recently deported mafioso, but presumably it was initiated by his old friend, Meyer Lansky. The message contained just three words. December, Hotel Nacional. Luciano knew right then that the gig of the century, Cuba, was about to be back on. for listening to episode 126 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Please join us in episode 127 for a continuation of the story of the Havana Conference. 